You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 116 for Monday the 4th of June 2018. My guest today is Miles Hudson, who was a secondary school physics teacher for more than 20 years and has been writing physics textbooks now for more than 15 years. He also invented and now sells from his own website, the Best Fit Line Ruler, which he created for science and maths education. By his own admission, textbook writing is quite uninspiring work, so Miles also writes fiction to feed his creativity. His first novel was a whodunit, The Cricketer's Corpse, but his latest story, 2089, is much more of a real piece of literature and was crowdfunded via Unbound. I met Miles through a digital project which was being run by New Writing North, and we worked together on the project between April and May of this year. When we chatted for the podcast, I began by asking Miles how he got involved with writing textbooks as a teacher. Strange story, actually. So I, um, I was a young teacher in, uh, actually it was my second job, but um, a publisher sent the school a new A-level textbook um, as a sort of inspection copy to say, have a look at what we've produced, um, isn't it great? Um, and they said, there's, there's three possible things you can do with this. If you like the book, you can just pay for it. Um, or, or you can send it back to us. Um, or if you fill in this little questionnaire about what you think is good and bad about it, you can have the book for free. So I thought, well, I'll do that. You know, young teacher trying to gather as many resources as I can. Um, and I sent it back. And uh, I don't know if I was the only person who replied or uh, if they particularly liked what I wrote. But they sent me another one about three weeks later. Um, and did the same thing, got another free book. Um, and then it was a little while later, they sent me a letter saying, um, you know, we had some correspondence recently and we're looking for authors to write uh, just a, a little brief bit of work. It was, a, it was a couple of worksheets to go alongside one of their other textbooks. Um, will you do that? We'll give you 50 quid. And I thought, well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're talking about 20 years ago now. Um, so, so I did that and then came a little while later, there was another project where I, they asked me to write a little bit more and you slowly sort of build up bigger and bigger jobs for them. Um, until eventually, uh, what was it? 2006 or seven. Um, I was offered my first solo a level textbook. Um, so yeah, big, big contract and, haven't looked back. <laughs> wow. So that, that that's fantastic. So you, you made your own luck by the sounds of it. You were a, a physics teacher, though. So a physics teacher for 20 years uh, in all? Uh, well, I qualified 25 years ago, actually. But um, I've spent so many years um, either just traveling the world or working freelance from home. Uh, you know, I've done a few years teaching and then quit and done a year or so doing other things. Um, you know, nearly always with physics education involved. So it would have been writing textbooks, for example. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd say 25 years as a physics teacher, but the reality is not quite so many years in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> so when you write a textbook then, um, 
are the publishers quite prescriptive about it or do they give you a free reign you just get on with it and present the book no it's very prescribed which in most areas of it um is actually really useful um so so one of the main issues for the publisher is that they'll be publishing other textbooks so i mean i write physics but they'll be publishing chemistry and biology sometimes psychology sometimes also geology um and and the series has to have exactly the same format across all the books and so that means that the page structure the overall structure of the book uh, is almost identical and you know they, they change the color scheme so for biology chemistry or physics um is about the only major difference and so that means that the sort of the number of words I can have on a double page spread as compared with the, the sort of area covered by pictures uh, is pretty much fixed. Um, and then hand in hand with that, generally speaking, you're matching the book to the requirements of the curriculum or a particular exam syllabus. And so that's prescribing the actual content. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, all of the books that I've written have been very closely linked to a particular curriculum or a particular syllabus. I haven't written any general textbooks. Uh, and so, so again, what I have to include is pretty much fixed. And the publishers tend to find that their customers don't really, for that kind of book, they don't really want you to go too widely off the topic because you then start confusing the students about will this be on the exam or not kind of thing. Um, so so it's, it is pretty heavily prescribed in the work that I've done. What, what about illustrations? Uh, do, you, do you just sort of do pen sketches and somebody uh, you know, who knows what they're doing does it? Or how, how does all uh, that work? Yeah, a bit, bit of um, everything, really. I mean, fortunately, again, uh, I've been working for quite big publishers. And so they have a whole picture research department. They have banks and banks of stock photos that they own. Um, or that they're, you know, they've negotiated a good deal on. And so they'll let you look sort of browse through to pick out of the stock photos. Or if you can't find one that matches with what you want, you can either suggest, you know, I'd like a picture of the space shuttle, maybe like this one I found on the NASA website, and you give them a reference that that looks kind of right. Um, or like you suggest, you sometimes have to sketch out like a, a particularly electrical circuit diagrams is a good example where I actually draw the picture and then somebody draws it properly if you like yeah. um, and it has been, I mean it, there have been many occasions where it's been absolutely infuriating that they employ a particular company of artists usually and of course they're not qualified in A-level physics or even sometimes GCSE physics so I'll say you know I want a picture of the nucleus of a uranium atom <laughs> and yet some sort of nonsense comes back which you know so of course i constantly complain you must employ artists that know physics and they constantly come back saying no no you must draw them a good picture that that shows what you want and so my, my response is well look if you want me to draw the picture then pay me to do it <laughs> but i mean the trouble is my artist is uh, capabilities are not good enough to do it but um it like i say it has been a constant source of frustration uh how how ludicrous some of the pictures come back from the briefs that i've given 
Where does that leave you then with the edit? Because you said the artists don't have that experience of physics. I mean, mm. an, an editor could read through for spelling mistakes and, and obvious things, but presumably an editor needs to have a bit of a knowledge of physics mm. to make sure you haven't put your foot in it somewhere. No, absolutely. And um, I mean, like I say, I've generally been dealing with um, pretty large publishers. And so um, they, the editors I've had have nearly always been pretty much totally competent in that. So I've never really had to explain too much to an editor. Um, and, and additionally, a, a textbook for a big company like that will go through a series of um, almost editorial reviews, if you like. So they'll send it to uh, another couple of physics teachers to say, you know, what do you think of this manuscript before you even get to the sort of production stage? Um Plus, if there's elements where you describe experiments, there'll be a review by a health and safety expert who checks that you're not going to tell the kids to burn themselves or whatever. Um, and so, so there are, like I say, fortunately, there's a whole lot of different backup processes. Sometimes I have to argue the toss and say, well, look, whoever's made this comment about that paragraph in my manuscript doesn't understand the subject. Um, but that's pretty rare um most most of the time it's either arguing about the angle that you might want to present it or me saying actually you know what you're right i've made a mistake there <laughs> let's change it to this do they still use ticker tape in physics? Uh, yeah so I, I personally hate ticker tape uh it's in, i think i think it goes back to not really getting the point of it when i did the experiment at school and that sort of hung over and stuck with me even through my teaching career. So I, I have done it in class, but I hate it. Um, and so I tend to avoid it where possible. It's much less common than it used to be. And it's, um, it's very much the sort of the next generation of physics teachers don't use it because they didn't learn it at school themselves. So it's on its way out, definitely. Um, and it's, it's pretty much been replaced with electronic um, timing gates so you you know you connect a, uh, a light gate to a computer and it will measure the time that something takes to go through it so you can do all your speed and acceleration calculations um, or in, in most cases the computer will do those calculations for you it's so mm. yes and no <laughs> that's so much cooler we used to have little um wooden carts if i remember with wheels on yeah. and the ticker tape and it was all very basic and it was for acceleration i think wasn't it we were yeah doing. no that's right i mean it's it's uh, i i do now have you know having discussed it with lots of physics teachers i do actually understand what you're supposed to do in the experiment i'm still unconvinced that it actually demonstrates it very well um and and the other thing is the whole the whole setup is very um, sort of ramshackle in my opinion it's very Heath Robinson kind of stuff um, so to actually uh, make your trolley run down the runway and drag the ticker tape uniformly through the machine and, and what have you is uh, it is tricky to make it work so um, so yes it is it, it, it's still it's still there but it's unusual yeah how much changes about physics I mean presumably the the, the principles remain static but the way that you prove them or demonstrate them um changes with technology 
Uh, yes, that's certainly the case. I mean, that, that's uh, what you're describing about ticker timers there. Um, that's a classic experiment. You know, sending trolleys along a runway where they're being pulled with a force is a uh, way of proving Newton's second law. Um, and that's, like we said, it used to be done with ticker tape and you would measure the accelerations caused by <laughs> measuring the lengths of your little bits of paper tape. And now, like I say, if you do, do it with light gates and uh, electronic timers, the computer will tell you the acceleration for each run of the trolley. Um, and so it's much like it's exactly what you're suggesting. The application of technology makes it much simpler and quicker. But there's a lot of sort of particularly old school purist physics teachers who would say it's kind of become a black box thing where the students don't really get a feel for what's changing they just see the computer tell them the numbers. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's an element where what physicists know about the whole universe um, has changed, uh, you know, over the 25 years that I've been a teacher. And so some things are new onto the curriculum since I graduated. Um, and some of it is just about that sort of technological change, the applications of these things and, and how partly how that's a change in how people live and partly a change in how you teach it differently. How much work that is involved with these textbooks on an ongoing basis? I, I mean, I, I would have thought that probably the way they keep changing exams every five minutes, it, it's, is it more a case of revision after a while rather than writing from scratch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the uh, roughly speaking, the government policy in England is to review the curriculum for both GCSE and for A-levels every five years. Uh, and that does involve changes. And so if you're producing books that are very specific to match with the syllabus, realistically, the publishers want to be publishing a new book for each age group every five years, um, which is much, much more rapid turnover than than it used to be. like when i was at school we had books that were had been in school for 20 years um and so in terms of how much has changed from one edition of the book to the next one you're right it's much less than it once was and so um now that i've developed quite a, a large back catalog uh i i can um use material that i've used before often with a bit of an update in terms of angle or how it matches with the exact wording of the syllabus. Um, often with some of those slight changes like you were suggesting where, you know, the way an experiment's done has been updated um, with new technology, so I might need to rewrite the, the, the sort of experiment that proves it, but the physics concept remains the same. Um, so, so the answer is there is some work to do each time, but uh, there is sort of plenty of support from my own previous material too. And now you're producing these books in the first instance on a Word document. Is it as straightforward as that, or is there a more complex process for you? No, it is, it is pretty much as simple as that. The, um, I, th I think the only um, caveat I would put on that is that the publishers, particularly in order to make sure that I match with the series formatting, they will send me a template Word document which has a whole bunch of particular styles that I'm permitted to use. Um, and so I have, to, I have to populate this existing template. Um, 
but it is it you know if you know word you can just type it quite happily yeah and how does your contract work here so is it, is it like a traditional author's contract uh, are you contracted to do the books and that's it or do you get royalties as well uh, you know it's very much a old school traditional kind of contract so um i'll be commissioned to yeah to write a certain amount of material there'll be um usually they're only notional but dates for different parts of it to be delivered um i'll be uh, receiving an advance and then royalties once it's published and you know the royalties count back off the advance um and we've had some uh i'm not gonna say arguments some interesting negotiations in recent times um because of course a lot of the the delivery of the product now has moved away from the physical paper textbook and you know a lot of uh, students will be using it on a tablet or something so there's an electronic version and sometimes that's sold hand in hand with a paper book sometimes they just buy a subscription to the electronic version Um, and so of course as soon as that transition started to happen the publishers spotted an opportunity to to change the contracts essentially in order to reduce how much they pay the authors <laughs> and so so that's where the interesting negotiations came in because i've been very insistent that i'm going to have the same royalty whatever format they deliver it in and they've been un, unhappy about having to do that but um i have managed to to make those negotiations happen um so, uh, yeah, I would say it's very much an uh, old-style, traditional publishing model. But I'm guessing this must be quite good, because when you write uh, fiction as a trad author, um, yeah. I, I always say, uh, as, in, as an author, a genre author, you're generally an unknown author at the bottom of a very deep genre. That's often the problem. But with, with uh, non-fiction, yeah. you are a keyword. You're, you're physics. You've got a big publisher behind you and you've got all these schools around the country who are going to take box loads of these things presumably so it must be a slightly more attractive novel than, than being um you know if you want um the life of yeah. a, mid, a midweight fiction author for instance no absolutely i mean I'm, i've been I, I find it much more interesting to write fiction and i've been trying as best i can to to move over into writing fiction but i i wouldn't have been able to do that without the the money stream that's coming from the physics books both because the royalties obviously flow for all of that five-year cycle for the book um and and as you suggest i mean it's uh, for my a-level textbooks i'm writing for the least popular of the half dozen a-level syllabuses you can follow um but we're still talking about several thousand sales every year um, and so, you know, compare that with uh, the sales of a fiction book. Uh, and, you, you know, you're absolutely right. It's way, way more than I would be able to sell of my novels as a traditional, traditionally published fiction writer. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating, and very interesting model, I think. Um, but yeah. uh, physics and textbooks, you know, um, let, let's dive into the writing side of it now, because I, I'm, I'm guessing you don't get a lot of um, outlet for your creativity in this. Um, I, I'd like to think that as much as I possibly can, you know, my um, the, the chapter titles may have a very clever pun or what have you. 
but to, to a certain extent, it, the creative outlet is more about clarity of expression than what I would perhaps refer to as genuine creativity. The 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 ability to be um, very clear so that every student reading it understands the physics concepts you're trying to get across uh, is actually pretty challenging. Um, and so, so, you know, you could argue that there's a significant element of creativity in, in making that work. And at the same time, the fact that the publisher's only given me 500 words per double page to do it in means that, you know, brevity is next to godliness kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So, so yeah, it's it's different. I'd say it's a different kind of creativity, but I'd like to think it is still. Um, ch- yeah, there's challenging work in there. Yeah, writing fiction is a is a different. It's a different part of the brain. It's a different kind of creativity. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering. So, having written all these kind of quite, I say formal, but I mean they're, they're textbooks, aren't they? They're exam books, so they have to be yeah. reasonably formal. I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How, how do you then move to? or over to a more creative form of writing, which is a completely different thing, really. Um, uh, you know, creative whodunits and sci-fi, as you've, you're now writing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, in actual fact, the answer is quite with some difficulty. Mm. Um, and, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I think I have a particular problem in that I'm writing physics textbooks. So it's very, very analytical um, science, which in itself is is very sort of formal and, and purist that, that you, the whole point of physics is to remove the human element. Um, and so, so to, to try and write, um, fiction where, you know, the characters are going to be interesting and they're going to have emotional arcs that the reader's going to relate to and get excited by, I have found extremely difficult. Um, I've, I'm very, very much, a plot-driven writer, and I, I, I'm conscious that that is because, you know, I can I can set up the logical sequence of events very well because that's a direct parallel with the, the physics work that I normally do. Um, and so the whole business of, of writing interesting characters and, and giving them depth and making the reader sympathetic to them um, is, I have found, really hard work, and I've had to make a conscious effort in in reviewing my own material to actually search out how you know how strong are these characters because you know i'm happy that the plot's going to take care of itself but i want you know it's it's realistically the characters that make your readers come back for more i'm going to dig into the writing uh, more in, in a moment i just want to yeah. go via a couple of other things before we we move on from the physics um, the first thing is is and i think this is interesting that you've also got into self-publishing because there is uh, the whiff of entrepreneur about you i think because you've you, you've uh, in a nice way uh, yes. because you've um created this best fit line ruler which you um presumably have, have of trademarked and got manufactured and you're now selling from your own website and that that shouts and screams entrepreneur to me where where did this well what is it first and where, where did it come from yeah i mean uh, absolutely it's a very uh, entrepreneurial thing it's um it, it's it's for graph drawing if you're drawing a graph by hand and and in physics lessons when we've taken experimental measurements um 
ev- every time in a physics experiment, you'll need to draw a graph of those results. Uh, and of course, in school, we're still training the students to do it with a pencil and ruler by hand so that they can get a real feel for, for how the data comes to show you a mathematical relationship. So, so one of the things that you want when you plot the data points is what's known as the best fit line, which is a sort of trend line that shows the overall pattern of the points and kind of ignores any minor errors in those measurements. Now, in order to decide exactly where that should go on the graph paper, it's a straight line um, which follows the basic pattern of the points, but to, to work out exactly where it matches the points can be quite tricky when you're just doing it by eye. Um, particularly if you're doing it with um, a traditional ruler, and even worse, if you're doing it with a regular ruler, that's opaque, so that when you lay the ruler down on the paper, it's actually obscuring some of the data points. So I was <laughs> I was invigilating a, a science exam and was stood in the back corner, kind of looking over this lad's shoulder as he was drawing. Uh, a, the question had a graph, and it said, you know, draw the best fit line on the graph, and he had a wooden ruler, um, and he was having real trouble trying to work out where to put it because he couldn't see all the points. And so I had this ding light bulb moment um, of, of producing a, a sort of fatter, clear plastic ruler with um, a, a slot down the very center, the long axis. So you can see all the points through it. And then your pencil goes up this central slot to draw the best fit line. Uh, and I've actually put a, a sort of squared grid on the clear plastic as well to help you see how far the points are away from this central slot. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that was a, a, a brand new idea. Um, I was surprised that for such a simple thing, nobody had previously invented it, but I managed to convince the patent office that it was a new and original innovation. Um, and so that was 10 years ago. And it's a pretty niche market. I, essentially, I sell to physics departments in schools, plus a handful of students by their own. But basically, that's the market. Um, and I, you know, like you say, I've, I've sourced an injection molding company that's relatively close to where I live um, to produce the plastic blanks. And then I screen print the grid onto them myself in my kitchen. Um, and then I've pretty much organized the sales of all of that from home mail order. Um, and in the 10 years I've been going, not quite 10 years, I've sold about 50,000. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, my, my estimate, and it is only an estimate, is that it's in 25% of English schools. Wow. That, well, congratulations. I mean, that is just brilliant entrepreneurialism. And, yeah. and just, I mean, frankly, you deserve a medal for navigating the patent side of it, because that's a nightmare, isn't it? Well, I, I, uh, under normal circumstances, I would say, yes, yeah, certainly have it, because I, I organised all of that myself. Um, and, you know, again, the, the sort of physics brain works quite nicely with the logic of the, the legal systems, because your patent has to be written in legal terminology. Um, albeit scientific legal terminology. But fortunately, this this ruler is such a simple object that describing it in these sort of legal terminology that you need to is still actually relatively simple. 
sets because all I'm all I've made is a clear plastic rectangle with a grid printed on it and a slot up the middle, and that's about all you need to include. Um, so it did take me a bit of back and forth debating with the patent office whether this um, device for cutting your cloth for quilting at the right angle is the same thing or different. And you know they 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 threw back half a dozen other inventions that they reckoned covered what I was trying to describe. And so for each of the, the, the processes for each of them, you have to write back and say, it's not like this because it's not like this one because, um, and so, so, uh, however, I did manage to send that back and, and make those arguments, uh, and convince them to award the patent. I think it's absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, congratulations. It's just, it's, it's such a, um, a niche thing to do but you've done a brilliant job of it you've sold yeah. so many of them as well because uh, that's half the problem most of the time you know you could, it's easy enough it's not easy enough to make something but most people make it and then can't sell it but you've sold it as well well that's right i mean it's um i mean one of the things i found with that is that it, it's definitely a product for physics teachers so that's my that's my real market you know 95 percent of the customers are physics teachers buying them for their school department um and of course being a physics teacher myself, it's very, very easy to talk to the customers just about life in general as a physics teacher and along the way throw in how I've come up with this thing that improves the students' ability to draw their best fit lines. And so it's it's not even like I really actually do a hard sell job. I just talk to people about what, you know, the <laughs> physics teaching that we both have in common anyway um so it's actually been being i'm not going to say easy to sell them but it's it, it kind of naturally flows from what i do anyway it's it's fantastic and uh, it's a really good example of finding a very narrow niche and yeah. and meeting that niche a really good example of that i think um yeah i mean it's it's, it's certainly been a case of uh trying to exploit that niche to the fullest because it really is a small group of potential customers that's for sure well, i can absolutely <laughs> see why you need it you know it's, it would be like gold dust for physics teachers and, and that's why it's such a brilliant product i think it's uh, inspired and, and, and you, you also touched there about having a lot in common with physics teachers how, how often do you get to sort of you know practice your your art where it all began in, in classrooms and in front of youngsters um well so i've just this academic so I, the last time i actually worked in school uh, properly as a physics teacher was four years ago and um in the time in between i've done a lot of um teacher training workshops um you know i, I still I've, I've been writing several different um textbooks and textbook additional materials and so on um and uh, the, the British Council in France get me over there probably for a couple of weeks each year to do some astronomy workshops in French schools. Um, so there's lots and lots of little bits and pieces that are ongoing. Um, but the, the, the big one is that I started um, about nine months ago as the PGCE physics tutor at Newcastle University. So I've been doing a lot of work with trainee physics teachers and visiting them in schools and so on recently 
Wow, fantastic. This is a really good example. Um, you might not know it in traditional, in tradi because you're more traditional circles, but in independent author circles, we call this uh, being an authorpreneur, in, in that you know, often <laughs> you need to supplement the, the income from the books by doing other things, by using your, your skills, the same skills right. that you use in writing. In other ways, I think you're an excellent example of that. Um, you, you would be held up in the, uh, in the indie author community as an right. authorpreneur, which is uh, what you do. You've got... I, sorry, I certainly do have my fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, and and partly that's, you know, a case of taking any work I get offered when I get offered it. And so, so I've sort of slowly built up this collection of eight or ten different things that I do. Um, and partly that's, as you suggested earlier, that kind of keeps my finger on the pulse. So I keep up to date with with all of these things. Um, but <laughs> the thing that I find most difficult is when, you know, when I meet somebody and they say, what do you do? And I, you know, I feel, well, I can't really say I'm a physics teacher cause I don't work in a school <laughs> and I can't really explain a lot of the, a lot of the things that I do are really quite specialist in physics education circles. And so, I mean, of course, I, what I like to say is, well, I'm a writer, <laughs> but, you know, and then, then the, they say, well, what do you write? And it's like, well, I write physics textbook, but I also write sci-fi. I've also got this series of detective novels, you know, so it becomes a much more long and involved conversation than if I was just a postman. For example. <laughs> yes. You know, it's e people understand that, but um, yeah, so that's, uh, that, that's the thing I found most tricky about being a uh, entrepreneur. <laughs> so when, at what point then um, did you start to think it's time to be writing some, fiction i need to get this out of my system well so i've always i guess i've always dabbled in fiction but but not to enough of an extent to get anywhere with it i mean one of the things that they always say you know about about being an author is you've got to be writing all the time you know to to, to develop your craft and and to produce i guess to produce enough so that you get some good stuff in there along with all the rubbish stuff um and I, I've never been committed enough to really do that, um, despite the fact that sort of pretty much ever since I left school, I've been writing bits and pieces of fiction. Um, but the, I, th I think the thing that really sort of nailed it for me was that I, after I've been writing physics textbooks for about 10 years, and I got another contract to write an A-level textbook. I thought, fantastic, you know, here this is a, um, another five-year cycle of royalties coming in. Uh, and I was sort of head down into this work a couple of months in writing physics every day, and I realized that it's, it's just boring. It's, it's writing <laughs> physics textbooks. I think partly because I've done so many is now not really as interesting as the sort of excitement I had when I first started out with it. And, you know, this was all a new activity. And so, so that kind of got me to realizing that actually I'm much, I enjoy much more the writing of the fiction stuff. Um, and so, so I made it, I had to make a genuinely conscious effort to shift the balance so that I was making more time to write the fiction stuff. And it's really hard to do that because because I'm not an established fiction author, it's very difficult to kind of justify not spending time on stuff that obviously pays to do something that doesn't necessarily pay. 
You know, it may well be that my fiction books are never going to pay me. You know, I might not even break even on, on some of them. Um, and so, so that writing always ended up at the bottom of the totem pole. And I really had to make a conscious effort over about the last five years to, to really set aside, you know, months at a time where I devoted myself to doing the fiction. Um, and it was, it was great to do it because, you know, it, it kind of enlivened my writing. I felt, I felt good about writing again because it was, I really do enjoy it. And so where did the Cricketer's Corpse come from? This is a, a whodunit, I think. That's right, yeah. So so I've got a um, uh, pair of detectives. I mean, there's a, there's a Detective Sergeant Tony Milburn who works at uh, Durham City CID. I live in Durham, so that's, that's kind of where that setting came about. And he has this um, civilian partner, a, a Kiwi, a surfer called uh, Penfold. And... Um, and so the two of them have a, have a series of, of cases that they solve. And, of course, it's, uh, it's always Milburn that's assigned to the case because he's a policeman. And, and somehow or other, Penfold manages to insinuate himself in helping to solve the case because, of course, as a civilian, he's not really supposed to be investigating it. Um, but the, the Cricketer's Corpse was, is only one of their stories. I've, I've written another one but not yet published it. And I've got, you know, I've got a notebook full of different cases that I'm just waiting for the time again to, to, to write out for them. Um, and so the Cricketers Corpse is, is the one that I've published of theirs. And like you say, it's, it's a whodunit. Um, a professional cricketer from Durham County Cricket Club is found dead in his bed. Um, and there's a, there's a, it, it really is a classic collection of eight suspects who potentially might have done it they've all got motive and so they have to kind of fathom out who had means who had opportunity and and what really went on um and so so i'm i hope i'd like to think that um the readers don't work it out until <laughs> until the end when they actually r- reveal who it is you said too that it's based in Durham. Do you use yeah. local setting, local environment to inspire that writing? Very much for the for the Penfold novels. I mean, um, I, I mentioned that Penfold himself is a surfer. Uh, I'm quite a keen surfer, which of course will be how that came about. Um, and so, so he lives at the beach near Hartlepool, which is probably about twenty minutes drive from where I live, uh, and it's my normal surf break. Uh, and so, so, you know, there's a, there's a house next to the beach there, which, um, is where I always park my car when I go surfing. And so, you know, I'll be sat in the car, um, watching the waves. And then if you look the other way, there's this big old ramshackle Victorian house, which I imagined as, as the place where he lives. And so it's very much, yes, um, wandering around the city, I'll see, you know, different places. So, so the, the, um, case of the kidney killer which is the other one i've written but not published um they find the body on the riverbank um down near the swimming pool in in durham city and so uh, you know again i've i spent a lot of time just leaning on the railing by the river um looking at this area and and thinking about how you know how the body might be partly in the water and partly in the mud and and so so i i really do make an effort to actually visit the locations and you know take loads of photographs of it so that you can sort of revisit it again um and i find that that really does make makes the writing easy 
um, because you don't have to imagine it. You just have to describe it. And how um, about the police, uh, police procedural elements? Did you get into all of that or do you, do you gloss over the procedure stuff? Um, a bit of both. Uh, the, um, the Cricketers' Corpse has a very gruesome um, discovery of the corpse. And it's, I mean, the first page is particularly gory, uh, which is... I, I always struggled with it a bit, actually, because the, I wanted to make it... Um, sort of interesting high stakes so something to really catch the reader's attention um but the the majority of it is very much a sort of classic cozy whodunit kind of thing um and so there is a, a, an element where some of some <laughs> particularly some of my older readers have said to me you know i wish i wish you'd calmed down the first page a little bit i <laughs> took me a while to get over that and carry on um but but um the uh the police procedural bit I don't go into in great detail, but I've done my best to 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 at least make it within the bounds of poetic license. Um, I, pl- I play hockey with a couple of um, police detectives, and so you know I, sp- I spent one evening in the pub with them, going over the things that I was planning to include and and finding out about. Um, you know, different kinds of judges and, and the, the home office pathology lab and, and things like that, which which are, I'm not going to claim are perfect in the story, but um, because obviously I've taken what these guys have said to me in the pub and then written something sort of based on that. So it's, like I say, within the bounds of poetic license, um, but I don't, I'm, I'm not worried about making it perfect. And that was a book that you self-published. And, and having been traditionally published, I'm interested what made you go down that route. Um, well, I think the first answer, the simple answer, is that I couldn't interest uh, any agents or publishers that I approached. Um, over a period of about 18 months, I probably got, I don't know, 50 rejection letters or emails. Um, and so so you you sort of get to the stage, well, you know, what am I going to do with this? Am I just going to put it back on the shelf and leave it to die? Or am I going to actually get it out there? And because I think it's, it's worth something. Um, and uh, in addition to that, um, with the, the sort of ease of self-publishing suddenly changing so radically, uh, I, I, I almost did it as an experiment to kind of find out, um, how easy it was, how successful it could be, um, and what were the pitfalls? You know, I wanted to, I wanted to see whether was this the way forward that I could follow, um, you know, and self-publish everything I wrote in future, or were there bigger things that were, you know, stumbling blocks that that perhaps would make it less attractive? Um, and I, I think, I think the outcome of my experiment had kind of mixed answers on that. Actually, there were some really good, really easy parts to it, and some bits that were um less attractive so it was it was a very interesting way of doing it certainly so how how did you self-publish it did you go ingram spark create space have you gone through amazon what was what did it look like for you when you did it um so i used a um a service that because i've been in the society of authors um ever since i started writing the physics stuff so so nearly 20 years uh, and the society of authors have a lot of uh, in the course of their newsletters and workshops and so on, they have a lot of information. So I sort of, by osmosis, picked up a whole load of information about how 
how definitely not to do it um, and how you could do it, the sort of different levels, I suppose, that you might go through. And so I tried to go for a sort of middling approach where I um, I used a paid-for service that um, did a combination of uh, taking my manuscript and putting it together in a format that worked well for um, you know the online retailers and so on for the ebook, and also they um, they structured it, um, including uh, getting the ISBN number and put, I, I mean I made my own cover design, but they then sort of put that into the file so that they could present it to Create Space uh, in a the format that they wanted. So I basically I didn't have to learn how to do all of that, um, which wasn't ridiculously expensive and uh, took all of those headaches off my hands. And the other side to that was, of course, that um, whilst an indie author solo can approach Amazon and create space, uh, there there are lots of organisations like uh, iTunes, for example, that won't deal with an individual, but you need to have a trade account for, Um, or at least you did at that time. And so, so that was the other advantage was that I managed to get it out into a massive number of online stores um, without having to do any of that work myself, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, and so usually with self-publishing, um, once you've published, self-published the first book, you find out that actually that isn't, that's only part of the journey. The worst bit is that actually selling the books. How, how did you go about that bit? Yeah, so I mean, having having had the experience of having to get out there and sell this ruler that I invented, um, which was at least five years I'd been doing that before I published any uh, published the Cookies Corpse. Um, I knew bits and pieces about, and I, I mean, again, selling the ruler, I kind of made up from scratch how I went about doing that. And as I mentioned earlier, it really was a case of. Uh, that was a case of talking to physics teachers who were the market. And so I kind of tried to apply the same principles to selling the cricketer's corpse. I actually went and and saw people. So so I mentioned that the, the, the guy who's died in the story was a professional cricketer at Durham County Cricket Club. So um, I got the cricket club on board uh, with with the idea of this book and um so they stocked it in the cricket club shop at the at the stadium and i did a uh a signing in the members lounge whilst the team were playing um so Dur- durham were playing against warwickshire that day um and and what i found was that by actually you know talk when you get to chance to actually talk to people about it it's very easy to sell um so i mean that you know that's afternoon in the members lounge i sold 25 copies um and i did uh, the waterstones have a local author thing where even if you're not on the sort of central waterstones computer the local should store manager can stock your book and so i arranged for them to do that and again i did a, a signing in the, the waterstones and uh, although i wasn't actually connected with Durham Book Festival. I timed it so that it was during the week of Durham Book Festival. Uh, and again, you know, sat in Waterstones for a couple of hours. I sold nearly 20 copies of it again. Um, and so those, so those I found were the ways to make big sales easily. Um, I found it very, very difficult to get much 
social media online traction. Um, and again, I think that's, you know, I was sort of at the very beginning of what's obviously a long journey to be a success. You're going to have to keep working at it and, and um, it, 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 you, you'll get to the stage where it snowballs. But uh, when you're starting out, it's definitely hard work. So you have a second book written, but actually in terms of publication, you've gone for sci-fi next, which is uh, <laughs> uh, just to make life difficult for yourself. You've had a, a genre change. Yeah, so why, why that decision? Well, so it was, um, I was about to write the next um, of Penfold's stories, and it was, it was literally the night before I had scheduled myself to start writing this next detective story. Um, I was watching uh, an interview with Edward Snowden, who was the um, whistleblower from the NSA who said that he publicly public sorry publicly published a whole load of secret stuff um from the american sort of tech spying organization and um he said that one of the things that the americans particularly complained about was that he published online a lot of their secret cables between their diplomats abroad and uh, washington uh, and so my immediate reaction to this was you know well if that's what you think about the people the, the leaders of those other countries um, you should have the courage of your convictions to stand up and say so. Now, diplomatically, I can understand that that's difficult, but it, it, it was the spark that made me start to think about how might people come to live if you couldn't have any secrets, if, if you couldn't have anything that couldn't be known by everybody else, what would life be like? How, how would our society be structured? How would it function? You know, could you have a war? If you could, you know, if the enemy would know what you were planning to do. Um, and so so based on that sort of philosophical idea, I wanted to try and explore it in a story. And so, so I got completely diverted from the detective thing and, and started to develop this this idea. How could so first of all, I had to develop a technology to stop people being able to have secrets. You know, how could you create the ultimate WikiLeaks world? Um, so, I, you know, I invented this uh, technology that can bug your brain effectively. And, and then I needed for society to publish those f feeds of what you see and what you hear. So I, I sort of set up this, this post-apocalyptic future England where there'd been such a, such a bad global meltdown of local civil wars that, you know, everybody wanted the, the deaths to stop. And, and so they instituted using this technology and publishing it publicly so that um, so that they couldn't have the situation that had led to this um, apocalypse uh, so nobody could have any secrets and, and so that the, the whole story um, developed just from that one idea how how would we come to live if there could be no secrets um, generated in, in order to explore that it generated this whole future world story um and and the hero of the book finally it, it, this is two generations hence they've been living with no secrets for for 50 years um he thinks hang on a second this is terrible people should be allowed to have private moments um and so he blows up the computer network and then goes on the run and so it's then the, the idea of the story is to explore, to make the society think through themselves which way round is the right, right way of doing this. So there's, 
Um, there's kind of an action chase as part of the story to keep to keep the story flowing. But the, the whole backdrop is all of these sort of social and philosophical themes. Now, interestingly, again, you've taken an entrepreneurial approach to this because you've gone through Unbound, which is a, mm. a crowdfunding uh, for, for authors, essentially. And I, I do know other authors who've, who've not managed to, to get the support that they wanted for their book. And, and then here you are, you're fully funded on your book. So I'm interested to know, number one, why you went for Unbound and number two, how you managed to get fully funded. Um, so, so the answer to the first question is, um, as I said, when I did the self-publishing of the detective story, I, I did get a sort of mixed feeling about how easy that was, how useful it was. And the, the single major stumbling block actually was what I alluded to when we were talking about how difficult it was to make sales. Um, I was perfectly capable, I felt of doing the, you know, the editorial work and everything. And it was the, the, what I really wanted a publisher for was to do the sales and marketing job. Um, and so, however, once again, I was unable to get a traditional publisher interested in, um, 2089 is the name I've given to this sci-fi story. Um, and so in, in the end, Unbound agreed to take it on uh, and, uh, like you say, the, the way that their business model works is you have to crowdfund essentially the capital to, to make the book in the first place and get it out there. Um, and so, so there was a there was a whole exercise of uh, of trying. It almost seemed more difficult. I found because I was trying to sell a product that, that didn't even exist. You know, I, I, holding a paperback in your hand and saying, "Look, here's my book. Do you want to buy it?" is one thing. <laughs> suggesting to people I'm going to publish a book in six months would you like to pre-order it effectively it is a, a different question entirely um, however I have to say you know the, the beauty of crowdfunding is that you do get a lot of support and help from you know all of your friends and family and and your wider circle um, and so so I mean I got a long way with that but um, I certainly didn't get I – did, I didn't meet the crowdfunding target on that alone. Um, I have put in an investment myself as part of that to reach the crowdfunding target. Um, and so, but the, I mean, the, I guess the beauty of Unbound as compared with the traditional publisher is that because they haven't really taken a financial risk – they give you a much higher proportion of the royalty. So, you know, you get you get 50% back rather than the standard 10% of a traditional publisher. So uh, I, I'm still going to have to work at selling it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but what that means is that um, I, I'm more hopeful that, um, that that will work out well because I've got the, you've sort of got the kudos, the backing of, um, Unbound are a relatively well-respected publisher, um, it, although you know, albeit relatively new to the market, not as big and, and historic as, as some of them. But nonetheless, um, they, if, if I go into a Waterstones and say, "Look, it's being published by Unbound," they know what you're talking about. They know, recognise it as a as a established publisher. So, so that does have an element where it's easier to do that sort of selling job. Would you then? prefer to be traditionally published would you prefer to have uh, a publisher doing that work for you 
Uh, I think the jury's still out, actually, um, because, I mean, the one, as I said, the the thing I really wanted was to have that sort of sales and marketing stuff taken away, because, of course, what I really want to be doing is writing. And so all the time that I spend setting up um, reading events or, um, you know, managing my uh, online presence, all of that kind of stuff is time that's taken away from the bit that I love, which is the writing. Um, And so, so you'd fingers crossed you'd hope that a traditional publisher would be doing a lot more of that work for you um but obviously the other side to that is if in the end you can make more money potentially let's say with self-publishing then that actually arguably might give you that time back to be writing more so so i think i'm I'm still not sure. <laughs> I'm doing another experiment. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what is your plan then? Because you, I mean, you, you've said that the, the textbooks obviously are, are reliable income. Um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that's great, which is fantastic. And it underwrites, it bootstraps, if you want, the, the work that you're doing in self-publishing at the moment. No, so for sure. what's your aspiration um, I, then? I mean, I, I, like you suggest, I think I'm really, really lucky to have that, that f- uh, constant income stream. I mean, I, I keep getting writing work coming in and I, you know there's a fairly reliable um series of physics education activities that i do um which does sort of underpin me financially and so um so in the in, in the long term uh, i can imagine i'm gonna have to keep doing that and it, uh, hopefully slowly shift the balance so that i'm managing to make more and more of my money from fiction so I can reduce the amount of work that I have to do on um, physics titles. But I suspect that in the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a constant compromise, balance, um, fingers in many pies will carry on kind of thing. Um, and in the shorter term, you know, the, uh, with 2089 coming out in um, September, so, so that's what, five, six months away, um, I'm going to be um, working towards a lot of those um, launch activities, book events and, and reading events and stuff. And I've lined up quite a few, so it'll be nailing the details of that. But also, um, as I've mentioned, I'm, I'm getting a little bit frustrated about not having time to write because um 2089 i've already got a notebook with the sequel starting in it um i've got another set of bits of information uh, ready to sort of put together for a prequel to it um and then as i mentioned penfold and and milburn have got a whole whole series of activities ready to be written so i actually want to spend the time on writing these things um so i'm intending again to to make a very conscious effort to to actually nail down some time for writing. Um, and I'm talking about fiction writing there because the physics just sort of flows the whole time. The, the last question I usually ask people is where can we find out more about you? But this is kind of where you and me met because you're, right. you're currently uh, doing the, the, uh, working with me on this um, DigiTransform program, which is yeah. being run by New Writing North. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one or two sub-questions in before getting there because i know you're having your brand new website you know built for you um yeah how did you get involved with the digi transform program and kind of what does it offer you as a as an author and um, yeah so as you mentioned it's organized by new writing north and it's um eu funded through northumbria university 
and um, it, it essentially it was for writers in the northeast. There was a competitive application, and fifteen of us uh, were successful in that um, because what they offer is it's roughly a two month sort of period of time and the whole aim of it it's called digi transform you're supposed to revamp your online presence and so the the sort of foundation part of that is um that they build you a new website um either to improve on one if you've already got one or um i've previously had websites for the the books but not for me as an author and so i'm getting uh, the sort of putting it all together into one author website. Um, but part of it, I mean, it's a fantastic program. They, they, they've taken, uh, they've done me a photo shoot for headshots. I've had um, video shoots so that there's some video content to put on this new website where I explained the, the different strands of my writing. Um, and then, yes, you know, they've got the, the web developers doing all of that work. And then, of course, there's there's your time uh, is is also um, organized through this program. Um, so, so that's been really helpful to kind of give me more ideas for the website and, uh, for self publishing and all sorts of different aspects to it. And uh, you, you'll know well enough that the, the conversations we've had have now <laughs> led me to a to-do list that's as long as my arm. <laughs> Don't expect any more physics books, guys. <laughs> Yeah, there's a load of stuff. So, so then that 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 can then bring me to my final question, which is when this interview runs in June, hopefully you're going to have a brand new author website um, that is yes. the culmination of this work. So, where Absolutely. where will we find out? Where will we find that? So, um, <laughs> what I've asked them to get is mileshudson.com. Um, so, fingers crossed that you'll be able to find mileshudson.com. Uh, and and see my shiny new website um and then alongside that part of the part of the things that you and i have discussed is um i'll be aiming to make both a, a facebook page and a, a twitter feed um miles hudson author um so those are the ways so mileshudson.com is the is the answer to your question Brilliant. Well, I will put, when this interview runs, whatever is available at the time will go on your resources page, and I'll be very happy to add it retrospectively after the interview's been published. That'll be fantastic. Thanks a lot, Paul. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much for speaking to me on the podcast today, Miles. No worries. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this week's interview. I'll have another edition of Paul's Podcast Diary for you on Saturday, and my next author interview will be dropped into the podcast feed on Monday the 18th of June, when I'll be chatting to multi-award winning Scottish author, screenwriter and writer of comics, Barry Hutchison. Now, Barry has over 80 trade published children's books to his credit, but he turned indie in 2016 after 10 years of being trade published, and he's now very glad that he did. So until next time, have a great week of writing. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.